Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, Alyssa Nicole. Hey, Samantha, who shall not be middle named. <laughs> uh, are you ready to get schooled? I am ready to get schooled. And I'm grateful because my brain is like not fully on today. So I'm glad that you're going to teach me today. Stuck at the office or traffic jam. Time to take it easy with Alyssa and Sam. Is that show you know? A pro. So I was talking to Matthew. I don't know why my eyes are watering now. Oh, I know. now she's the emotional one. The tables one. have turned. Um, now the turntables. Exactly. I was talking to Matthew, my husband, life partner, etc. <laughs> Love of my life. Yeah. Um, and I was talking about how when we do guest episodes, sometimes like feedback that we get is that we haven't talked enough, which usually we're just like, I mean, we're just listening to this guest that has graciously come onto the podcast. Yeah. Um, well, and they know better. Exactly. <laughs> typically speaking, they're more intelligent than I'm going to say me and not both of us because, you know. In that, well, that's the thing, though. They're experts in their field. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're, it's not that they're more intelligent overall. They're just, they've dedicated their life to that area of study. And that's what they're here for. So, yeah. um, but that is some feedback that we sometimes get. Um, and uh, I was talking about that feedback and then also how um sometimes i'm like oh i wish we could have expanded on that topic but a lot of the times as well like our guests obviously have you know lives outside of the podcast which we do not so <laughs> i was like there's sometimes th- t- things that i want to like expand on or like talk more about or ask more questions about um and he was like well why don't you do a podcast doing exactly that like expanding on things that were in the guest episode so that's what we're doing it's gonna be great okay i realize that the premise doesn't sound that interesting but it's Great. I'm interested. Um, thank you. Don't put yourself down like that. It was a good Thanks. idea. Well, it wasn't my idea. So really, <laughs> don't put Matt down like that. <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> um, so let's get into it. Okay. Just in case they missed the last episode, maybe sure. let's talk about like what the last episode was. So the last episode, I am going to go through like note by note of like what we brought up. Um, but uh, the last episode we had um, on Dr. Melanie Badali, and she is an expert um, in anxiety and phobias and stuff like that. She's a psychologist. She has over 20 years of experience. So um, that's what she was talking about. And through that conversation, a few different things came up that um, I just wanted to like look into more. Yeah. So I had mentioned briefly um, about women receiving non-judgmental care and how that led to um, better outcomes in terms of like labor and and birth. Um, So I wanted to expand on that just a touch. Um, So this is a Cochrane report. There was 26 studies involving more than 15,000 women from 17 countries. Um, And so this was just, um, they were trying to look at women that received continuous support. So this is support throughout the entire like labor and birth. So be it from like a doula or midwife or hospital staff or like a family friend, whatever. Um, And what they found in most of these cases is that women who received continuous labor support uh, were more likely to give birth spontaneously, um, meaning giving birth vaginally with no um, forceps, cesarean or um, 
like vacuum suctioning. <laughs> um, and in addition, uh, that women may be less likely to use pain medications um, and maybe more likely to be satisfied and have shorter labors as well. Hmm. And so on average, it was like 45 to an hour less for labor. Um, and then postpartum depression could also be lower in women who are supported in labor. Um, but they said that they couldn't be sh- sure of this due to the studies being difficult to compare, like, you know, people living in different areas and right. settings and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I feel like it would be hard to have, like, a controlled study of, of I mean, what do you deem as, like, support, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and then it said the babies who received, the babies of women who received uh, continuous support may be less likely to have low five-minute APGAR scores, which is the score used when babies' health and well-being are assessed at birth and shortly afterwards. Or which, sorry? Um, it's the score used when baby's health and well-being are assessed at birth and shortly afterwards. Oh, got it. Yeah. So anyways, that's just kind of interesting. I just wanted to expand on that a little bit. Um, you, I think, Alyssa, brought up East Hastings. Yes. Um, so East Hastings, or downtown east side, um, is a neighborhood in Vancouver, for those of you that don't know, Vancouver, Canada. Um, and this is um, an area that's really widely known for... Um, addiction issues, homelessness, uh, mental illness issues as well. So I just wanted to give some facts about that. (sighs) This is mostly from the Wikipedia page. Okay. Um, The population of the downtown east side is about 7,000 people. Um, Before the 1980s, the downtown east side was um, kind of like the hub of the city. So political, cultural, and retail center of the city. Um, And then that area experienced a rapid decline following an influx of hard drugs Um, release of mentally ill individuals, which was due to psychiatric hospitals reducing the number of patient days of care by about 65%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, And so many of the deinstitutionalized people moved to the downtown east side between this time, like 1985, 1999, um, because they were seeking low-cost housing. um, But without adequate support and treatment, uh, many of them became addicted to drugs, which were just really readily available in that area. Um, I mean, and I would argue that, you know, drugs are pretty readily available if it's something that you even remotely are looking for, Um, which oftentimes because of like self-medication, if you're not, if you're not being cared for at, you know, the proper venues, uh, could be something to help you escape. Well, and it's crazy too, because they reference specifically, um, Riverview Hospital, which is the one right by that, uh, movie theater that we go to. So it's like that abandoned hospital you would have driven past it like a bunch of times um but that hospital also is used in like a ton of movies and stuff like that and it's been shut down since 2006 i want to say maybe later even but um yeah there was like a ton of abuse and stuff like that happening there as well sorry i want to say as well when i said help you escape i'm not advocating obviously for (laughs) drug use to deal with mental illness i'm just saying why it it may be that somebody for sure. Would use it for escapism. Um, so so release of mentally ill individuals. Um, policies pushing prostitution and drug-related activity out of nearby areas. Um, and then the cessation of federally funded social housing. And that was also like what contributed to the decline of that area. Um, and then by 1997, there was an HIV epidemic. HIV and drug overdose epidemic, um, which led to the declaration of a public health emergency. Um, at that time, the rate of infection was worse than anywhere else in the world outside of sub-Saharan Africa for HIV. Oh, wow. I know. 
is that not because it's such a small area with like really such a small population yeah um but that was how bad it was and so um that led to the creation of north america's first legal safe injection site in 2003 um and the rates of hiv infection dropped from 8.1 out of 100 people 8.1 cases out of 100 people in 1997 to 0.37 cases out of 100 people in 2011. It's like very obviously statistically oh, yeah. successful. <laughs> and I'm going to get in. Oh, she's got a whole page of notes. I'm going to get into that. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm still in my yoga clothes from my yoga teacher training, but I'm like burning up like the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> Let it out. <laughs> Downtown Eastside also has a high population of Indigenous Canadians who are disproportionately affected by the neighborhood's social problems. Um, it also has one of the highest police-related death rates in Canada. It's tied with another place in Alberta, I believe. Um, Wild. So I know. And uh, overwhelmingly, people are killed. People killed are either in mental distress, so about 64%, um, and or have discernible mental health or substance abuse issues, which is 75.8% of victims. Yeah. So it's just kind of sad. It's a, it's a little bit of like a rough area in general, and they just have a lot of different problems going on. Um, also, this is just a little bit of a historical thing. Um, between 1980 and 2002, more than 60 women went missing from the downtown east side, most of whom were sex workers. Um, and then Robert Pickton, who is a Canadian serial killer, um, was charged with the murder of 26 of those women. Yeah, we studied um, one woman's particular case in women's studies when I was in college. With Robert Pickton? Yeah, yeah, but it was her story. Um, I can't remember the book now. So wait. She got out or she was murdered? No, she was murdered. Oh, okay. I think it was her sister that wrote the book, I want to say, but now I can't. It was, I mean, it was 10 years ago that I was in college. It was quite a horrific Nine story years. if you guys, like, care to, like, look into it more. Yeah. Um, but it's true. And, and I think, if I recall correctly as well in the book, they were saying that because it was, um, you know, sex workers and often Indigenous sex workers that were going missing, um, you know, the uh, air quotes interest was yeah. low to try and help find them. Um, and some people had argued that, uh, you know, there's qu questionable behaviors, right? So it's, you could go off the radar for a couple of days and then come back and that's was their argument is that, oh, they'll turn back up. But yeah. I mean, you have to discern at some point that this is not <laughs> a missing person from like a, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk more about um, the legal injection site um, so this is uh, in Vancouver. It's called Insight, if you want to look it up, I-N-S-I-T-E. Um, and so, again, North America's first legal injection site. Um, this is like a really controversial thing, usually, <laughs> to people outside of Vancouver. Um, I know. That's what's funny, too. Sorry to interrupt you. I, When people say it's controversial, I'm like, why? Because, like, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? My circle doesn't feel like it's controversial. Yeah. Um, but outside of Vancouver, you're absolutely right. It is It is quite controversial. Well, and I think because you can see the positive effects of it, and it's so clear to see, really, when you look into it. Um, but I think that it really comes down to stigma. Um, there was a uh, political someone, I can't remember who it was exactly, but he said that it was like an abomination. <laughs> Um, and so there has been continual um, lobbying to try and get Insight shut down. And Insight actually exists under an exemption of the like Controlled Substances Act of Canada. Um, and it was supposed to be shut down. Like it was supposed to be like a preliminary thing um, just for a while. And then uh, 
it was supposed to get shut down and then they were like, eh, we'll leave it for a little bit longer. We'll leave it for a little bit longer. And then it's just stayed ever since. Can you test your drugs there as well? Let me tell you. Sorry. <laughs> so um, Insight is a legal injection site, but it's also, they supply clean um, needles, sterile cookers, filters, water, and tourniquets. Um, they also have a checking service, so clients can check drugs for fentanyl or carfentanyl. Um, and then they have medical staff present to provide addiction treatment, um, mental health assistance, and first aid. So uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so Insight actually has... Um, <clears throat> Right above Insight, they have OnSite, which is, um, I think it's it's actually kind of treated almost like, not maybe not like a halfway house, but like you, it's like people can stay there overnight and stuff like that if they want addiction treatment and stuff. Um, so if they are there and they want help, they can just like literally go right upstairs. So it's a really, really good system in that way. Um, and then also kind of like the process from what I understand is like you would go into the injection room. Um, inject there's like medical staff on site obviously and then you can go into a room after that where you can kind of like sit and wait it out they recorded over 175,000 visits um, from 7,301 unique users in 2017 Um, there was 2,100 overdoses um, that occurred that year with no fatalities due to medical intervention Um, and Health Canada only provides Insight with $500,000 a year to operate the site, which I, I'm not sure if that seems like a lot of funding. <laughs> that seems like very little funding to me, yeah. Well, when you think about the fact, I mean, obviously this is, I, I think it's completely run by volunteers. I could be wrong. Um, but like with the amount of visitors that they have, um, the amount of supplies that they're, you know, supplying, like it, it just seems like such a small amount, like really... When you compare that to the alternative, which is either not helping these people, leading to obviously, like we mentioned, like high rates of um, infectious diseases, overdose, death, yeah, um, or trying to like forcibly rehabilitate people or not forcibly, um, you know, just like in a cost wise, which like obviously that's not the issue at hand. Like, but if we're looking at this from like a purely like political financial aspect um it's it's such an affordable and effective option and so that's that's why it's so bizarre to me that it is um controversial because why (laughs) yeah well and to give that like even some context the five hundred thousand. well this just came to me just now i'm gonna say the other one in a second what was that art installation under the bridge how much did that oh, cost? Oh, a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so <laughs> the public transit, yeah. So a hundred thousand dollars for. I thought it was more. Editing Alyssa here. Sorry to interrupt. The art installation that I'm speaking of here is actually a four point eight million dollar chandelier that was installed under Vancouver's Granville Bridge. Four point eight million dollars. Okay, thank you. Just a moment to thank today's sponsor, which is Native Deodorant. Native Deodorant is filled with ingredients found in nature, such as coconut oil for its antimicrobial properties, shea butter for moisturizing, and tapioca starch to absorb wetness. They have so many tasty scents. <laughs> tasty scents. Dude, the the pumpkin spice latte. I know, you won't let it go. She's fall oh, fresh. 
I am fall fresh. Like, honestly, when I'm working out, I swear to goodness. I actually, I had that scent beside my computer the other day and I was smelling it because it reminded, we made these like pumpkin spice cookies Uh. and it reminded me of that. So I was smelling it while I was working. (laughs) Native is formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc, which can clog your sweat glands and keep you from sweating, which we don't want. No, sweating's good for you. Yeah, man. Sweat it out. We just don't necessarily want to like. I don't want that stank. No, I want to stink good. I want to stink good. And I stink good right now. (laughs) Um, It's vegan and never tested on animals. And there's no risk to try because Native offers free shipping and 30-day returns and exchanges within the U.S. Listen to their fall seasonal flavors. Oof. Okay. Coconut milk and turmeric. Buttercream and French vanilla. Yeah. Damn. Okay. All of these are going to have a smell and tasty. Blood orange and clove. Blood orange is actually such like a fall slash winter scent. It really is. Yeah. Mixed with that clove though. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that, that would smell. <gasps> Ooh, what if you mix the pumpkin spice one with the clove You blended one? it. Mm. Or like one under each arm. So then people can be like, what's. <sighs> yeah. She's so unique. Yeah. You know how like Quirky. you blend all your foundations together? Ex- yes, exactly. Do the same with deodorant. Yeah. Uh, and then also rosemary and lemon zest. Aww. An herbaceous scent. Yeah. Love it. Uh, Native is also now offering plastic-free packaging, which is phenomenal. We love to see it, and it's made from 100% paperboard. So if you guys would like to try Native deodorant, you can get 20% off your first purchase by visiting nativedeo.com slash approachable20 and use code approachable20 during checkout. That's nativedeo.com slash approachable20 to get 20% off your first order with Native. Thank you so much, Native. For a chandelier, was it? Underneath a bridge? Let me look it up. Yeah, because I, and I, I agree. I think that art is important. Um, and, you know, especially for tourism and stuff like that. But if you're trying to <laughs> say apples to apples, like what's more important, like piece of art or human life? I don't know. That's up yeah. to you to decide, I guess. But I'm doing a project for my yoga teacher training as well um, on yoga therapy and how it can help uh, in recovery from addiction. And I was researching and the funding for the DEA is over $2 billion <laughs> annually. So when you think about, and I know um, that that's the US, of course, uh, and not Canada, but when you think about uh, charging people for drug crimes and stuff like that, and oftentimes that's on like a larger scale when the DEA is involved in stuff, but um, when, when Richard Nixon said like, drugs are public enemy number one, it's like, but are they? Yeah. Drugs are an object. Okay, drugs are basically inherently unchanging. You know, you can modify the chemical structure, but they're unchanging. They're not going to change their nature because you tell them to. Yeah. So what can we change? We can change the way that people see see drugs or seek out drugs. And then for me, that's finding the underlying reason that drugs could be a shiny, air quotes, shiny object Mm -hmm. for these people. And that underlying reason is like a myriad of reasons, of course. but a big one is mental health. Yeah. And so whilst people are in the throes of addiction, which is a disease of the brain, mm-hmm. right? No, nobody came out and said that, um, y- you know, um, th- you know, things that caught, well, that's not a good one to make, but I was thinking about <laughs> this in the car about how, you know, cancer is a disease. And obviously my dad passed away from cancer. So I'm, that's why I kind of leapt to that one. Um, you know, he wasn't looked at 
with stigma in that way, right? It's it Yeah, was like a, what did you do to cause your cancer kind of thing? Exactly, yeah. And I mean, there are obviously cancer-causing products and stuff like that that we can avoid and stuff, but no, I don't feel like anyway, anyone's looking at a cancer patient being like, well, why, why did you eat peanut yeah. butter? You know what I mean? Um, so for me, I feel like the disconnect there is stigma. Yeah. And let's, while people are in the throes of addiction, which like I said, is a disease, uh, let's try to make that process not more comfortable, but let's get you through that process. Well, just so more, that, so, like have more support around it and resources. Well, but, but so that you can get through it so mm-hmm. that you don't unfortunately end your life. Yeah. Right? Like um, n- not, e- not even on purpose, right? With overdose and stuff like that. And especially the opioid crisis, which is so dangerous. Yeah. Um, and is a crisis that we're fighting currently. I got facts on that. She's here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I also wanted to mention, because I just thought that this was an uplifting fact, um, 95% of the clients of Insight um, say that they find the staff respectful and trustworthy. And I just thought that that was pleasant because I do think that, um, you know, beyond all of these other problems, I think that a lot of people struggling with both mental illness and substance abuse issues are um, treated as like less than human. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's just like a really, really horrific um you know thing that we do as a society um to people that really just they they need help yeah i think that as humans we fear what we can't predict right like we like to anticipate how someone is going to react with us and take that kind of like experience and go into it like that and oftentimes just the nature of using drugs people can be unpredictable and i think that that actually might be a part of where that stems from Mm. um just trying to you know, like understand the the sort of stigma, I guess, like why people might be um, treating, you know, people struggling with substance abuse and addiction uh, less than. I think that truly, because I do see humanity in, in so many people, like I see um, so much good, even in people that I don't agree with, right? And so I want to try to understand why they feel that way. Because if we understand that, maybe we can like flip the script yeah, and say, okay, maybe... Maybe you are worried that this person will do something unpredictable, but you can still then see their humanity. Yeah. Well, and I also think, too, that um, there's kind of this, like, incorrect belief that um, drug addicts are, like, exclusively people who are, like, homeless and, like, down on their luck and whatever. And, like, there's there's tons and tons and tons of, like, functioning um people with like substance abuse issues that are working and they have families and they seem like you know like quote like productive like members of society and so I think you know there's the stigma of like of like why should I have to pay for somebody who's not working and you know they're just doing whatever what they're like throwing their life away and stuff like that but it's like but that's not everybody that's dealing Mm -hmm. with addiction and also I mean it just comes down to like basic humanity like that shouldn't be what it's about because there was likely something that led that person to to get there you know exactly um And I also wanted to mention, uh, I didn't write down notes about it, so don't quote me directly, but um, the community of the downtown east side has been continually kind of, um, like, people have tried to, like, clean up the area and, like, sort of, like, push those people out of that area. Push them to where? Exactly. (laughs) Um, And the community, not only, like, of homeless people, but people that actually, like, live in the area, um, 
in houses um, have kind of like fought back against that because it's such a tight knit community Mm -hmm. and the community in general has also advocated for themselves to like open up parks um, and like clean up different areas. Do you know Crab Park? No. Okay. So that's like right by where I used to live. Um, If you walk right down the street at like the end of main street kind of thing there's a park right there that's like along the beach and they actually advocated for that park to be opened um and so there's just there's just a bunch of things that they've done like as a community to sort of like clean up the area themselves and um reopen different centers and stuff like that so you know i think it's just i don't know it's just always comes back to that stigma um but you mentioned the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. so Canada, but also the U.S., um, is currently experiencing an opioid crisis um, and fentanyl specifically as well. Um, So since 2016, there's been more than 9,000 opioid-related deaths um, in Canada. Uh, And Canadians aged 15 to 24 are the fastest-growing population requiring hospital care from opioid uh, overdoses. Fentanyl is an opioid um, that can't be seen, tasted, or smelled. And so um, it's become more and more common for it to be, um, for, like, street drugs to be laced with fentanyl. Um, And a few grains of salt worth uh, can be enough to kill you. Um, So that's been a huge issue. Uh, Death and hospitalization rates were highest in B.C., Alberta, um, and then Yukon and Northwest Territories within Canada. That's surprising to me. Mm -hmm. Is that per capita, do you know, or just numbers? Don't know. Because I feel like, wow, that's so interesting. Um, But I think, again, um, you know, areas with high um, indigenous populations as well are likely to be more affected because um those communities are more affected by substance abuse right um at least within canada i'm not sure what the statistics are like in well the and i w- wonder if they um would receive poor quality of care i'm sure therefore relating to more deaths yeah for sure uh something to the reason well i mean i don't know i'm not a drug supplier but the reasons that i've heard <laughs> a drug supplier <laughs> i'm not a drug dealer um the reasons i've heard that they are uh cutting things like heroin with fentanyl is because it takes so much less to get you high to get you high and so Mm -hmm. it's cheaper for the uh for the supplier and also with covid it's uh it's really slowed which is this is what's so interesting to me about like the war on drugs sorry i know i'm going back to that again but hit it it's it's slowed the um import of drugs into the country oh really yeah, how are they going to get it through? Like, there's so much, you know, it's yeah. it's a lot harder for, you know, they're losing work too, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still drug addicts, obviously. There's still people with substance abuse issues, even through this pandemic, of course. Um, and so people are going to continue to use and suppliers are going to have to come up with more, quote, again, creative ways to continue their product, right? Yeah. And um you know, if there's not a supply of, I don't want to say clean drugs because very, very, very few yeah. are obviously clean. Um, but if there's not a supply coming from where they might normally come from, it's going to be, it's going to be supplied somehow and worse or stepped on, as yeah. they would say, you know, like mixed and, and, and laced with different things. And um, it, yeah, it's really, really gotten bad. And there's even like signs around Vancouver uh, and the, the, greater vancouver area that say 
your drugs are not clean. Like the the actual city, you know, is is putting up. You're like, let's not mess around anymore. Well, but that I, and I I actually did love that when I saw that it was a huge uh, billboard uh, going into New Westminster, and I saw it, and I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was basically like, please be careful, like the drugs are not clean. Mm-hmm. And I would so much rather drive into a city and see that than know that we're trying to hide. Yeah, you know, this really horrible thing that could kill you and like you said it's not there's no um there's no poster child and there's there's no poster adult or whatever for addiction or using drugs there's people who have uh used cocaine for the first time you know young teens for the first time and overdosed because that was laced Mm -hmm. with an opioid right and so I don't know. I I don't feel like I even need to make that comparison, but I I do feel the need because for some reason we care more, you know, about the family who lost their child yeah. or, you know, um again, air quotes upstanding citizen yeah. than if, you know, the, you know, people living on the downtown east side or whatever. Yeah. Well, exactly. Some some someone that people view as having like potential within exactly. society kind of thing, which everyone has potential. Exactly, yeah. Um and I also throughout like all of this because I did like we ended up kind of like bringing up drugs and rehab and stuff like that quite a few times and so I was surprised by how little um there is in the way of like information but also resources when I was trying to look it up. There's a lot of people talking about the opioid crisis, but there's not a lot of, like, statistics around it, I found. Um, So I'm just not sure if I'm, like, a bad researcher or what. Uh, But I spent a lot of time on it, and I wasn't able to find, like, a ton of statistics about it, which was just surprising because it is obviously, you know, impacting our society in a big way. Um, And I wanted to also just mention that the opioid crisis um, includes both prescription and illegal opiates. So you know that's like a different side to it as well because again going back to that stigma of the belief that like and and this also lends to people um not getting help because they feel like well i have a job i'm taking prescription opiates i'm fine you know like but but you can be just as deep into substance abuse as somebody who's homeless and looks more traditionally like a drug addict you know right so i think that's an important one to mention there's um, there's actually sorry I came in around that's you. okay there's um a couple celebrities who have had some serious serious substance abuse issues and uh they took prescription painkillers or whatever and you might think oh well I'm not going to buy it from a drug addict or whatever I'm just abusing this prescription or yeah. I've managed to get my doctor to prescribe this or or whatever it might be um that yeah like you said doesn't seem as much like an issue but yeah um that also uh a few people were asking we referenced a podcast like very very quickly actually dr badali referenced a podcast um talking about a celebrity who had recently had a relapse um and there was a few of you guys asking what podcast that was so that was dax shepherd's podcast um armchair expert and it was the episode called day seven so um dax shepherd is a celebrity who had been kind of like famously um sober for 16 years and he talks about that whole journey and um relapsing actually a couple times over that time um and just recently took a new sober date basically so um it's a really really great episode i thought it was really um interesting to hear from his perspective um and to just he was just like very forthcoming and obviously it would be very difficult because he is a celebrity and you know like there's just so much attached to that so um 
it was a great episode and I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, I also was, I'm curious to know, I, and I don't have the answer for this, but um, when you were talking about like checking drugs and stuff like that and drugs not being clean and with Insight having a checking service, I'm curious to know, like, are people less likely to actually use drugs if they do a checking service and find out that it is laced? Or does that just more so help the medical staff, I wonder? So I can't speak to Insight. Yeah. But I do know... I'm thinking back to that comment that was like, was Alyssa the well, mob wife? <laughs> <laughs> I do know from uh, my past that if there were drug site checkings available at festivals or whatever it might be, um, the general festival goers would throw out their drugs wow. if they were unsafe. I'm surprised. You know what? I'm I'm not surprised by that because... We don't want to take drugs that we think are going to kill us. Yeah. I think that that's, um, again, like not stigma on your part, but I think um, like stigma in the general population that it's just like these like people who are so flippant savages or whatever that just, you know, they'll take whatever they can get. And I think that, you know, sometimes it can get to a place where, um, you know, there's there's very little like uh, room for reasoning in the brain at mm-hmm. that point, for sure. I, I can see that. Um, and I've definitely been in uh, phases of my life where I haven't had a whole lot of reasoning going on in my brain. Um, but absolutely, there's a lot of people who, you know, would rather choose to seek out again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a safer alternative if they find out that their drug... Cause it, you know, at at these festivals and stuff like that, generally speaking, it's um, recreational drug use, which is still very serious because oftentimes, you know, it gets just can be dangerous too. Yeah, it gets uh, out of hand. Um, And I don't want to say out of hand as if like recreational drug use isn't dangerous too. But again, I'm also not like super judgmental. So anyway, (laughs) just like there's a lot like going on. Um, But where was I going with that now? (laughs) Um, you were talking about people like throwing out drugs that are not, uh, and you were saying like that at these, um, right. Sorry. So these recreational drug users, they're, they're taking it to have a good time. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? They're not taking it, um, because they are oftentimes like, because they're going through withdrawal or something like that, you know? And so, uh, I really, I don't advocate outwardly. (laughs) Uh, I advocate very like inwardly and within my circle, um, for, drug testing absolutely i could out- advocate outwardly actually and i will do that i just need to find the, <laughs> the avenues i yeah. hadn't really thought about doing that yeah interesting um you had also brought up Alyssa, uh waiting times for rehab and mm-hmm. how that could potentially um impact people's likelihood of getting treatment um so in 2016 in the u.s um 21 million people approximately aged 12 and up needed substance abuse treatment um, only about 3.8 million got treatment. So that's about 18%, which actually was higher than I was expecting. Right. Um, also, um, about 240 million people globally consume alcohol problematically. Um, and there's about 15 million people that use injection drugs, which I think globally? is like... Globally? Yeah, apparently. Um, which I think is like important to note because um, I think that... And I think we've talked about this in the podcast before, but we've certainly talked about it privately. But... Um, I think that alcohol abuse specifically is um, very much so swept under the rug mm-hmm. because it is like a, a much more widespread problem um, and it's 
and it's just so common for people to be using alcohol problematically and yet it's treated as if it's like very socially acceptable um and you know again like it's not like we're like looking down on anyone using alcohol obviously we're both sober here (laughs) um but you know like it, it is it's kind of crazy like how um casual we are about alcohol consumption well and and to those people again who you know question specifically me I feel like they question me often if I'm judgmental um or I sound judgmental of other people drinking I guess I would just um ask you to maybe take a look at like why you feel that way because I I'm not I'm not judgmental of people who drink alcohol um I'm concerned for certain people for sure in my life um who drink um, alcohol, but I know that when I even had like a sneaking suspicion that I had um, alcohol use disorder or like a problem with alcohol or whatever, um, when, when even when people were sober and I just knew that they were sober, I felt like that was a judgment. Mm. And there was a reason for that. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying that you think I'm judgmental and therefore you have an issue. Yeah. But I think it's just worthwhile looking into if maybe you're receiving judgment from anyone else or you're judging yourself perhaps or um, whatever. I don't know. I don't know what that is. But um, I mean, all I can say is that I'm not judgmental. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, So uh, I just wanted to kind of get into those barriers um, surrounding people potentially getting treatment or not getting treatment. So um, one abstract that I was uh, looking up cited that 28.6% of their participants would not seek treatment because they would have to be on a waiting list. Um, Another one cited 53.8% of their participants emphasizing that wait times were a significant barrier. Um, And in that same abstract, um, a lot of those people mentioned that there's not only the first waiting period um, calling for an assessment before and then actually receiving the assessment, the time between those two things, but then a second barrier, which is, um, you know, the waiting period between after you're assessed, but before treatment. Um, And so both of which can cause kind of, you know, people dropping out before they've even gotten into treatment. Um, I tried to call a few <laughs> rehabs and no one would answer my questions. Well, I'm, I'm really interested. You texted me that before this episode. I'm really interested how those conversations went and why you think they wouldn't answer your questions. So I don't know. But um, the first one of the first ones that I called, um, I said, I just was like, what's your typical wait time for treatment? Um, and he was like, well, it depends. I mean, it, like you know, like it it could be based on like a number of things, like your funding structure. And I was like, okay. And then he was like, but why? And I was like, I'm just, I'm just doing general research. And he was like, are you wanting to be admitted? And I was like, I'm just doing general research. And he was like, I can't answer that question. And I was like, okay. But Um, I, that is so frustrating to me. I know. Because for so many reasons, (laughs) (laughs) but what if I was a concerned partner? parent, Mm -hmm. friend, and I wanted to have all of my ducks in a row before I went to my loved one to approach them about it, to approach them or offer, you know, help or something like that. And you're not willing to give me information because you're trying to cover your ass. That's immediately where my brain goes. And maybe that's cynicism. But yeah, to me, that's what it, you know, are are you worried that you're a journalist or a reporter or, you know, whatever. But also like, I mean, if you were somebody struggling with substance abuse, I really do. I agree with you that like 
you know, a lot of the times, and, and I can relate to this with um, going to therapy for depression. For me, it was like such a spur of the moment thing. I was like, okay, I, I recognize I need to go. I'm not like putting it off anymore. I'm not telling myself I'm fine and I need to go. So if I had called someone and they wouldn't answer my questions, wouldn't tell me how long it would be before I could get an appointment, wouldn't tell me how much it was going to cost, like stuff like that, I would be like, never mind. And um, in one of those abstracts as well, um, there were a few participants that mentioned that um, if they felt like they were receiving judgmental care or they felt like the um, answers to their questions were inadequate in their assessment, um, that that would be a barrier for them too, for pursuing treatment. Um, so that first place that I called, um, he said that funding structure was a potential thing that could impact wait times and then he wouldn't answer any questions um, further. Um, another place that I called, um, said that they couldn't answer that question. And then a third place that I called um, said that it would be dependent on a number of factors. And the only factor that they cited was whether or not you were male or female. So um, some rehabilitation centers um, separate men from women. Um, and so that was actually the rehab center that Matt went to, mm. my husband. Um, he, his, that rehabilitation center basically said like, so, you know, we might not have space for you if you call in right now and you're female because we just had three male pa patients leave. So we don't have beds for... I see. Yeah. So that was like what they had kind of cited. And then they said that they couldn't answer beyond that. So, um, but they were the most helpful out of anyone. Um, so there's like a few barriers that kind of go into rehab based on my research, um, financial being one. Mm -hmm. So, and then there's also kind of an, a, you know, disparity between... Um, publicly funded rehabilitation centers versus private, um, which, you know, financially speaking is drastically different. Um, uh, waiting period, um, required sobriety pending treatment, which causes a lot of people to not pursue treatment overall. No kidding. Yeah. So <laughs> there's certain um, rehabilitations that will requi require you to be sober for whatever amount of time. If I could get sober on my own, believe me, I wouldn't be going to rehab. <laughs> well, and then that's that's the other issue is that there's some people that like that's enough to um, make them not pursue treatment further. And then there's other people that actually are able to get sober during that time. But um, that lends to them believing that they don't need treatment. Right. <laughs> which also um, lends to higher rates of relapse um because they weren't in treatment for right well they weren't in treatment um and then uh inaccessibility to info is one that i wrote down because i felt like even just even trying to find um government subsidi subsidized rehab centers i felt that was like a tricky to track down mm -hmm. um when i was calling private centers they wouldn't answer my questions mm -hmm. <laughs> um and so i feel like that as well um if if Things are difficult to do already. You've knocked out tons of people who are like going to be like, fuck it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and especially people that need help in dire situations because, you know, they they need help now. They mm -hmm. don't need help five weeks from now. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and especially people who don't have others advocating for them. For sure. Yeah. You know, um, in my life, I've been really grateful to see people who have struggled with addiction and their family is able to um, kind of like hold them up and do that kind of legwork for them because they're just not mentally or emotionally capable to do that kind of calling around, <clears throat> excuse me, um, or filling out of forms or jumping through hoops. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And um, 
I, it just kills me that there is so much of that jumping through hoops for people who might not be able to even understand. Yeah. Right. Um, even for myself, like trying to jump through hoops of getting car insurance and stuff like that, that's already a lot for me and I'm, I'm sober right now. So I'm thinking clearly. Um, and yeah, it, it really, it really makes me sad. And for the wait times, especially that is something that I really wholeheartedly believe, especially with government funded. Um, I, again, am grateful that we have (laughs) programs, um, where your treatment can be funded and detox centers as well, which is huge because, um, in certain cases, especially with, um, alcohol dependency and, um, perhaps like opioid withdrawal and stuff like that, um, is a good resource, but the waiting to get there yeah, (laughs) and the requirements and then, you know, the possibility of lost paperwork and stuff. And I know that these humans behind the the resources are doing their very best but i think that the structure or the funding or you know or 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 yeah you know i think that that what like such a letdown right like when i see people who are quite you know so seriously struggling in themselves with substance abuse addiction mental health you know yeah i i think like wow we failed you well, and also, and then we're also treating those people as if like less than, and why don't you get a job and why don't you blah, blah, blah. But it's like, but there's no resources or there's very um, little accessibility um, in the way of resources for people to be able to help themselves anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you're leaving like basically no option for these people, then what are you kind of expecting, you know? Right. Um, and I wanted to talk about um, different types of rehabilitation. So um the short-term rehabilitation, typically like 28 to 30 days, um, which would be inpatient, um, is typically... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill cheaper or sometimes like uh government subsidized um but statistically not as effective in many cases especially for severe addictions um outpatient rehabilitation um which has a higher dropout rate than inpatient um it's best for low risk um people who are at low risk of relapse um or those who don't need uh medication management which takes out like a huge group of people as well um and then it's also not ideal for people in acute withdrawal or those who have unstable health conditions and then there's long-term inpatient treatment which is the most expensive typically um tricky for those with jobs because again going back to the stigma of people thinking that it's like only homeless people addicted to drugs there's people with families and jobs and whatever and so long-term inpatient therapy is you know you can be gone for usually over three months. Mm -hmm. Um, And the National Institute Institute on Drug Abuse um, states that any program lasting less than 90 days lacks lacks efficacy um, and longer stays typically result in better outcomes, including um, better employment outcomes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I think it's it's just such a 
tricky and like sad situation because there isn't enough resources and um, the resources that are a little bit more readily available like outpatient and short-term inpatient treatments are not as effective. Yeah. Well, and for context, um, private rehabs can um, vary from 15000 to $30,000 yeah. um, per program. And that's not, you know, that's not the celebrity, you know, bougie yeah. sort yeah. of situation. That's just quite literally what it costs Yeah, for private. Which, I mean, is unrealistic for most people. Yeah. So. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's sad. Um, you had asked um, Dr. Badali whether or not phobias are regional. Mm, yes. Um, I had a hard time finding any evidence around that, any research around that, rather, I should say. Um, but there was, um, from what I understand, more cultural rather than regional. Okay. Um, so one of the things that came up through my research was in Japan. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this without a doubt because I don't speak Japanese. Um, but it's called Taijin Kyo Fushu, TKS, okay? Um, which is a fear of interpersonal relationships characterized by an intense fear that their body is embarrassing to others. Oh. So most Western social phobias focus on the fear of embarrassing yourself, um, whereas TKS is being afraid of embarrassing others with your presence. Um, so you don't want to offend people with like bodily functions, appearances, um, including your face, actions, um, how you look, or odor. Huh. And so in Western culture, we're a lot more like individualistic, kind of like all about me, you know? Right. Um, whereas um, Japanese culture is more about being like collectivist. So is this going to embarrass my family? Right. Um, Stuff like that, which I thought was kind of interesting. There was another abstract that I was looking up as well that um, they interviewed people from like all over the world and on different things. Like how scared are you of um, civil war? How scared are you of genetically modified foods? How scared are you of whatever? Like all these different things. And it was bizarre (laughs) how much of a difference there was between countries for all of these different things. But of course... Like, that makes perfect sense. Like, there's going to be certain areas of the world that are much more afraid of um, genetically modified foods just because maybe that's not as much a part of their culture as it is in, like, America, let's say. Right. Um, And same thing with, like, nuclear war and stuff. Like, countries that have been affected more by nuclear war are going to be more um, afraid of that than, like, Sweden. Yeah. Um, And actually, a lot of Scandinavian countries, I noticed, um, are they don't got a lot of fears going on (laughs) they're pretty like yeah everything's fine do you know that i this is completely off topic go i learned today that scandinavian countries do a lot of studies on how heat affects the body which is interesting oh really it's not particularly warm yeah in scandinavia at all so not heat not lack thereof no but like how heat affects the body in general, like the circul- circulatory system and why are all they sorts curious? Because they're like we're dying over here. No, <laughs> I don't know why they're curious. I just know that um, there's a lot of benefits to heat. Yeah, I like being warm. Um, yeah, like specifically for like short amounts of times that you can sweat and shit like that. But that's like a whole thing. But um, I was interested that they were the ones like. That all like a lot of these studies were coming up. <laughs> they're the one championing. Yeah, they're like, 
<laughs> we feel like shit. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm sure they don't. But I, I do notice a huge difference between like doing yoga in like a cold room or like a room temp room rather than a hot room. Yeah. I just, huge difference. I do too. And when I when I had studied it um, very like briefly before, like years ago, I came up with that there was really no, there was, there was no research that it was better for you or worse really? for you. Yep. Which is incorrect because now I'm in yoga teacher training and there's the the slide was all of the things that it um that it benefits for and then the next slide were all of the studies like mm-hmm. it was like number one this and then the next slide was the study for that so you can research it on your own um but yeah there's like a, a myriad of reasons that it's good for you I love it yeah I mean um, it's not like 100% necessary in your life I guess but um, a nice addition yeah definitely benefits yeah I will say um I will say throughout trying to research like a broad topic of a broad range of topics here, um, it's incredibly hard to find um, reliable sources. I find. Yeah? I do think so. Yeah. I, I find it hard to find, um, especially with like trying to uh, research about like the regional right things. Yeah. Very slim pickings out there. And yeah. Um, yeah it's just it's interesting and and even with like the drugs thing again like it's it's just was so bizarre to me how hard it was to find even like rehabilitation centers and stuff well and even like that's the thing though is like even these statistics like when you said 15 million um intravenous drug users i was shocked because i felt like that was low oh for sure um but that's the thing is like even with statistics there's absolutely people who just wouldn't be a part exactly <laughs> of the of the stu- of the uh what's that called census yeah um so yeah I mean it's the same with when I was researching um how many people that struggle with substance abuse also struggle with mental illness it was 45 percent and I was like I just I feel like that's so much higher and that because of the stigma it creates ignorance and by ignorance I mean like the the lack of knowledge right yeah um uh around it and so they, you might just not know. Yeah. Like, I feel like that number is higher and maybe that's just me, <laughs> like, putting my bias onto it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but so even even if you get your results from, like, a, a uh, reputable, source. reputable source, it's like, I mean, how accurate is anything in this world? So it turns out, um, moral of the story, it's hard to research humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I found so interesting about, I bring it up all the time. I don't know why. I'm so proud of my two years of psychology or whatever it was. That's fair. Uh, that was what was so interesting to me about learning about like controlled studies and stuff like that. Because, I mean, really to me, like scientific studies are the only thing that I can like, you know, for sure be like, that yeah that must be true because x y and z right Mm -hmm. because it's a controlled study and there's all of these parameters that you have to be like um you know to be able to publish a peer-reviewed article or whatever it's like yeah it's kind of like okay this has like a little bit more rigid yeah exactly whereas you know other things you can kind of fuck the dog on (laughs) yeah exactly um but that's all i have for you well that was really interesting thank you no problem yeah so that's it okay Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed this. If you did like this, I mean, I'd be interested to know whether or not you did. So then we can perhaps do this again in the future sometime. I don't know. Yeah. Like when we have guests on doing like a follow-up episode on questions that came about or what have you. Yeah. Which, I mean, also would be great because if you guys had questions on guest episodes, then we could also try and research that on your behalf. So true. We will become your Google. (laughs) 
<laughs> two girls free of charge. Eagle. Yeah, exactly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Free of charge. You have to watch the ads fully. <laughs> oh, yeah. No skipping the ads. You have to use at least one promo code a quarter. <laughs> Proof of promo code use. Yeah. <laughs> before, we, before we start typing into Google. Uh, <laughs> oh, jokes. Okay. Thank you guys so much for watching slash listening. We will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.